Well, Jimmy, cousin, um, we've spent an hour talking about, um, you know, your early life and your, your career as an attorney. Uh, we've spent an hour talking about the great Harold Poole and the other members of the greatest generation who not only fought in World War II, uh, but also um, survived and, um, and stand as great men and women, um, examples for all of us. Um, let's now talk about where you come in as a lawyer, as you intersect with Harold Poole. And, uh, you know, tell us about this lawsuit, how it came to be, um, who are the players involved, and um, why you think this is an important story that needs to be told. Well, let's uh, begin at the beginning. Uh, the law passed in 1999 that made it possible for these lawsuits to be brought against Japanese corporations in California. Bill was passed by Tom Hayden. Remarkably enough, you know, the Tom Hayden of the Jane Fonda fame. Well, once that law passed, Lester Tenney became the first client who was brought to the mega firm by Michael Goldstein. Now, the mega firm did not want to have as its flagship case something that they thought they could lose. So they were not really interested in taking this on because people had tried to take this issue before, gone nowhere. But they got uh, some of the finest lawyers in America from Greenberg, Trarick, and Patton Boggs to take a look at it and study the peace treaty in 1951 and get expert witnesses to come in and tell us exactly what it said and didn't say. Probably the uh, most impressive legal mind on the whole team was an attorney in Dave Casey's office by the name of Bonnie Kane. Uh, Bonnie has turned out to be one of my closest friends, one of the people I uh, respect not only professionally, but um, she's one of the nicest people you'll ever you'll ever meet. Well, Bonnie's the one that researched the history of it and figured out exactly where everything was, and then she came up with the legal theories that we used to go forward with. The legal theory of going after compensation for wages with the interest compounded uh, yearly. Start by, if you don't mind, tell us about the treaty itself. This wasn't what was signed on the boat, the surrender. This no. was. Tell us about the history there. Well, remarkably enough, just because they stopped shooting at each other doesn't mean there's a peace treaty. It took till 1951 to get a peace treaty in place that ended all the issues because there are a lot of things out there and it takes too long to go through them all. But the key paragraph in the peace treaty of 1951, which was signed in San Francisco, was 14B that basically says that no lawsuit can be brought against Japan by an American or Japanese against America. The way we read the peace treaty... Well, just real quick, why would they include that? What Do you have any sense for diplomatically, sure. commercially, what were the motives to add that well, clause? Let's have a history lesson. After the First World War... We had the peace treaty at Versailles. The problem was that the British and the other allies wanted to be so punitive to Germany for what happened that they demanded terms of that peace treaty that just put Germany to its knees. And because of that, historians argue that uh, it fomented and created a petri dish that was perfect for the birth of one Adolf Hitler. In the Third Reich. In the Third Reich. The, the, those involved in the peace treaty and the negotiating of it in 1951 didn't want to repeat that mistake. They said, we're not going to be punitive about this. We want Japan to come back 
we were just seeing the ugly head of communism start to to rise over there. And we said, we need somebody over there like Japan. I mean, Japan went to war with Russia in the early 1900s. So we wanted that geopolitical area stabilized. To do that, we said, we want all the lawsuits over. We don't want this to go on any further. Let Japan build its uh, economy. MacArthur's going to go over there with the army of occupation, on and on and on. The way our experts read that treaty, they said, you're right. An American citizen cannot sue Japan. But an American citizen can sue a Japanese corporation with the proper legislation. So that was the focus of the litigation as we filed it and marched forward. We thought we were on very solid legal ground. The Japanese corporations came into court, both state and federal. And it gets very complicated, but we explain it in the book. And they were able to get us thrown out of court based on that section of the peace treaty. That led into a very interesting arena, the political arena. If someone comes and says, okay, John, I want your house because we need to build a high school here, they can force you to sell the house. It's called eminent domain. But by taking your house, under the Fifth Amendment, they got to give you compensation. It's called the espousal of a right. Well, once the courts ruled, and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, once they ruled that uh, paragraph 14b espoused the rights of the American soldier to file that lawsuit, we said there was an unconstitutional taking of a right. Okay, America, you compensate the uh, soldiers. So we went to Congress, and we tried to get a bill passed. And that led to some remarkable exchanges. Now, keep in mind that Germany and German companies did just that. When the lawsuits were filed against them, there was a stay of the proceedings. President Clinton sent Stuart Eisenstadt over to Europe and said, now negotiate this, and they did. When the American Japanese said, hey, wait a second, we were unconstitutionally put in internment camps, we want this solved, Ronald Reagan stepped in and gave him $1.2 billion and apologized. Well, now we have the American soldier come back who was brutalized, who had his rights taken away, and says, America, set this right. That led to the Senate hearings that I referenced earlier with Senator Hatch. And Senator Hatch and Joe Biden, the Democrat from Delaware, put together legislation to compensate the men. Unfortunately, very powerful lobbying efforts took place. And I'm not exactly sure how all that played out because I wasn't inside those rooms. And with the Iraq war starting and the money being drained, the American uh, State Department said, we're not going to do this. Now, some would argue that George Bush, our current president, stopped this. I don't know that for a fact, so I'm not going to say that. I think he's a good American. He cares about the American soldier. I, politics is politics, but I don't think it was ever presented to him. I don't think he ever put his arms around it and understood it. But um, we have now made arrangements to, to deliver a copy of my book to him. And I feel very confident in the next seven days he's going to be hand-delivered the book because of some friends that we have. I uh, feel very comfortable now that the, everything was defeated three years ago. All of a sudden, there's a renewed interest in getting this bill passed. You know, the bill was killed. It so, died three years ago. So let's, so let's back up a bit. You, uh, you take this case on. You do the, the historical work to understand um, the treaty, et cetera, and, um, and you start pursuing it. Um, you've talked about it at a super high level, but tell us just one level deeper. Um, 
you know, what some of the complications were, some, what some of the issues were, and, um, you know, what your involvement was. Well, I was involved at the very beginning. I was involved in every hearing. I reviewed every document, every submission of briefs. We had, um, uh, from Greenberg Truric Law Firm and from Patton Boggs, uh, attorneys who had been in the State Department uh, who had argued treaty issues before who would come into court in California, both in the state courts and the federal courts, and argue motions where the other side argued the case should be dismissed because the peace treaty was just barred. It was just federal lawyers on the defense? Well, there were lawyers who represented the Japanese corporations in federal court, and there were lawyers representing the Japanese corporations in state court because we were in both venues. So, so Mitsubishi and Nippon hired lawyers? Oh, yeah. They had a whole battalion of lawyers. Japanese or U.S. lawyers? Oh, they're all U.S. lawyers. Any any names of firms that come to mind? Oh, I don't remember. Kirkland and Ellis? No. I think many of the largest firms in America were involved. Um, uh, Crom- Sullivan and Cromwell out of New York comes to mind because they were one of the lead uh, group of attorneys. Uh, it had very powerful lobbying efforts going on. You know, this got a lot of publicity. I mean, this was on 2020. Did an article in Parade Magazine. There were op-ed pieces in the New York Times. I mean, this was everywhere. Around what year were were these state um, courts being held? This this started in 1999 through 2003. And um, and I'll say this uh, jokingly. How did you you know turn up truck uh, California lawyers feel about going up against the big guys? Well, you know, we knew early on that our forte was uh, in the courtroom. I mean, we had Russ Herman, who is the former president of ATLA. We had David Casey, former president of ATLA, Maury Herman, Jim Kitchen from Mississippi. I mean, we had top trial lawyers from all over America. But trial lawyers are not the A players when you're going to argue a treaty before an appellate court or before a motion to dismiss. That's when you need the uh, firms like Greenberg, Traurig, and Patton Boggs who have lawyers who specialize in treaty issues. And that's who we brought in. We knew that going in. We assembled probably one of the most formidable teams imaginable. Now, the difference between the plaintiff side and the defense side, every time you saw one of these big firms come in on the defense side, they were being paid by the hour. Every Every lawyer that came in there got paid. Our side, nobody got paid unless we won the case. Not one single lawyer in this case has made one dime. And we've spent millions of dollars prosecuting the case. So um, I'm sure our listeners would love to believe that this was a purely altruistic motive. Uh, and this may be impossible to do, but can, can you give it a sense for, at least in your heart and mind, you know, was there some profit motive? Was it purely for the good of America and for Harold Poole? How'd you come down on that? Well, why don't we just address me? I can tell you when I first got introduced to the case, one of the things that uh, really attracted me was this is big tobacco all over again, except this time I wasn't going to be a bit player. I was going to be a major player, and I was going to get in not at the end of the case, but at the beginning of the case. And it wasn't without its potential financial financial uh, payment. I mean, if we had won the case at a 28% contingency fee, you're talking about an enormous profit to all the lawyers. I mean, we take huge risks, but the uptick is pretty good. Well, in this particular case, once we got into it, you know, you might have been motivated by money. I mean, I don't think money was the motivating factor for anybody. It was a factor along with others, but as you learned the cause and you felt what was really, and you met the men, 
then there became more of an emotional attachment. And, you know, I can recall, you know, my favorite novel is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And and there's a scene in that uh, book where uh, Scout is talking to her dad. And he says, you know, Scout, uh, in every lawyer's career, a case comes along that they just have to take. And um, that's kind of how I feel about this case in retrospect. I just had to take it. And as we got further and further into it, and we spent millions of dollars in time and uh, real expenses prosecuting it, and nobody wanted to quit. Nobody walked away from it. Not one single lawyer. And we weren't about to quit. Even when it was looking like you might might lose? Oh, right to the last. I mean, when the last uh, court ruled, and I knew it was over, I still didn't want to quit. Hmm. When we lost in Congress uh, three years ago, I always believed in my heart of hearts. If you know the problem with Congress people, they're very bright, most of them. I mean, a Joe Biden and an Orrin Hatch and a Lindsey Graham and a Dianne Feinstein, you get in a room with them and you realize the breadth of their intellect and you're really pleased with who they are and what they're doing. Problem. They don't have time to be reflective on the real issue. There's no way that they can possibly hear everything they need to hear. They heard it, and they all agree with what we were trying to do. I mean, Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas, Democrat. I mean, she's so far left, you can't find her half the day. Dana Rohrbacher, so far to the right, he's going to bump into Sheila coming the other way. They can't even agree on what time it is. (laughs) Both of them believe that these men should have their day in court. Mike Honda... Democrat California was one who pushed this case and pushed it and pushed it. He, as a little boy, was in an internment camp for Japanese Americans. He was so impressed when he met Harold Poole in Salt Lake City, he went back and put his suit on and came back with a camera and asked to have his picture taken with Harold Poole. Mm. So as you're around these uh, statesmen, and that's what I'll call them, not politicians, you realize that, hey, they're really bright, but they don't get to hear the whole story. And so I knew... And I shared this with Lee. I said, you know, if we could ever write the book and put it someplace where they could pick it up and and whatever number of hours it takes them to read it, they would understand the real issue. And then they'd make the right decision. And that's how I feel about President Bush. I, you know, I feel in my heart of hearts, if he just sat down at Camp David for an afternoon, you know, if he ever had the time, and read it and said, my goodness, we can't do this. I mean, we got to fix this. And that's what's happening. So... So you, you fought this in both state and federal courts in, in California. Correct. And you lost? Yeah. Did, did, why? What happened? What well, do you think happened? What was the judgment? Well, the judgment was that because of the peace treaty of 1951, that paragraph 14B precluded any lawsuit. That's the end of it. The California appellate court upheld it, the state Supreme Court upheld it, and the same with the federal. So how, after how many days or, you know, how, oh, extensive, how extensive was the initial battle within the states? Oh, it was, it was a, an enormous battle. It took, uh, took years to get to that point. And then you lost. Then how'd, lost. You, how'd you feel when the state, when, when your efforts in the state, uh, you know? I always knew, and any good trial lawyer will tell you this, you can always lose. I mean, you look at the O.J. Simpson case. And you go, good night, how'd that happen? I mean, anybody can lose anything. You can have the best case in the world and lose it. I was shocked, but then again, I wasn't. I mean, there are arguments both ways. 
I mean, I don't think the courts were so far out of bounds where you'd say, you know, this is just ridiculous. I mean, there's a there there are legal reasons why they decided the way they decided the case. I understand that. What I don't understand is how once that was done, Congress walked away from it and the White House walked away from okay, it. Okay, so so it's defeated in the state. You go to appellate courts. And, and you say it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, the way it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is is, uh, is uh, presented with a uh, petition to uh, review the case. And they denied certiorari. And they said, this is not a case we're going to look at. Therefore, the decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal stands. And then the state Supreme Court says, well, why are we going to look into this? It's already been decided. It gets a little more complicated than that. The book kind of lays it out. And I think for a layperson to understand it, but it was over. Had, had you chosen someone to argue in front of the Supreme Court if it were to have been accepted? Well, I'm sure that uh, Patton and Boggs had somebody or Greenberg Trarick who does it all the time. You, you don't have a, um, a personal injury lawyer from uh, Palm Desert, <laughs> California, get up before the nine justices and argue the Supreme Court. You know, you think about doing it. I think a lot of you, cousin. I think you'd, you'd do just fine. Well, I, I would if I got to um, uh, select the rules. <laughs> but they go by a different set of rules up there. Right, okay. So um, so the Supreme Court uh, throws it down, but Jimmy's not giving up. Well, you know, I, I knew that if, 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 I, if I just walked away and said, okay, you lost in court and you lost in Congress, then, then you know, what happens to the story? I never wanted the story to, to die. I said, Harold Poole... Uh, he needs to have a story told. And I was prepared to do it, and I was prepared to spend my own money to do it. What was it like telling Harold that you kept losing? It was interesting because at one point in the case, he wanted to get out. He'd read a book by um, uh, the president of the Mormon Church, Gordon B. Hinckley, that talked about forgiveness. And I got a panic phone call from Paul Warren. He says, hey, you're going to lose your best client. He, <laughs> he just wants to walk away. He doesn't think litigation's the way to go. And I had to get him on the phone and talk to him. So, so the, the, now this is going to be really interesting to our listeners. He's listening to a prophet of God. He's a Christian. You're a Christian. He's thinking in his mind forgiveness. A lot of people would say, look, come on, 50 years later, yeah, war's bad. Bad things happen to people. But come on, it's done. It's time. It's time to forgive. Let bygones be bygones. How do you... How do you get up the muster to try and unconvince him of that? And I'm not saying. Well, let me you tell you how I did it. Put yourself against the prophet, but well, I, I mean, I, it is a. I didn't put myself against the prophet. I just uh, got Harold on the phone. I said, Harold, if somebody came in your house and took your TV and you knew he had it down the street, what would you do about it? Would you just say, okay, go ahead and keep my TV? Well, what if he did it a month ago? How about six months ago? At what point do you say I'm just going to forget it? Now, if you think the Mormon church doesn't believe in litigation, then why in the world did they found a law school down at BYU? Why do they have a trial practice program? It's because certain things need to be litigated. If somebody came in and took a helicopter, went up on the Mormon temple and took Moroni off of it and said, I'm going to take it down to the warehouse over there in uh, West Jordan and watch it forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think President Hinckley would say to that? In the same book, President Hinckley talked about somebody that had come into his home, took some money off his uh, desk, and then years later uh, wrote him a letter and admitted it. And, uh, and, and President Hinckley said, well, where's the money and where's the interest? 
I mean, that's the same book. Now, I, I think President Hinckley's right. I think if your wife says something to you hurtful or you say something hurtful to your wife, we're all better off if we walk away from it and forgive. I think at the end of the litigation, part of the process is truth and reconciliation. I was in South Africa last year in September, and I went to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was a prisoner. And I read his autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom. And in it, after being a, a political prisoner for 28 years, he walks out of prison, becomes the president of the country, and people go, what's he going to do? And he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to have truth and reconciliation. If you come in and admit it, and you're not a leader, you walk. If he hadn't done that, there'd have been a slaughter of monumental proportions. So do I believe in that? Of course I do. But I don't believe you ought to just walk away from something like this. And at the end, Harold said, you know, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because the story has to be told. People cannot forget it happened. And you know something? I'd like an apology from the Japanese. So that was kind of an interesting little uh, thought-provoking uh, colloquy that he and I had on the telephone. Because I wasn't about to confront President Hinckley. He's my prophet too. But sometimes the words of the prophet can be taken out of context and used a thousand different ways that don't make any sense. I mean, why don't you go down to the county courthouse in Salt Lake City and see what kind of litigation the church is in now? They're not going to walk away and let somebody take advantage of them. We had that happen to us. We had it happen in Nauvoo. We had it happen in, uh, in uh, Missouri. It's not going to stand. Makes sense. So you got you got Harold back on board. Yes. So after the Supreme Court, the next step is Congress. Well, we you know we're we're going to Congress and trying to get all this done, and then that failed. But what do you mean get it done? Well, get compensation for the men. You know, at the end of the day, there's no way Congress is going to come in and pay the men their back wages. So what did it really turn out to be? It was more symbolic. If if Congress had come in and say, okay, we know this happened, we have a resolution, we're going to uh, give each man $20,000, what that does is it says, uh, as an American people, we acknowledge that it happened and you meant something. The amount, I think, is quite irrelevant to my men. I don't think they really care. But it's the thought that matters. We deal in money all the time. I mean, why help the Germans and their slave laborers resolve their disputes why do it for the Japanese Americans that were interned in California, Colorado, Idaho, and Arizona, and then say to the American soldier, you know something, we don't give a damn. We don't care. Forgive. Go about your business. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not fair. So the logic was have it come out of the U.S. Treasury yes. instead of out of the Japanese corporation. At first, my clients didn't want that. At first, they said, wait a minute, we want it from the Japanese. This is not right. We want it the Japanese corporations. Then as they understood what happened, it was us that, that, you that know. backed away. And then they got, a couple of them got pretty mad. One of them in particular said, I love my country, but I hate my government. Mm. You know, they left me out to dry in the Philippines. Mm. They lied to me. In 1951, they took away my rights and told me not to talk about it. Did they get back to us? They never did. And then in 2000, 2001, 2 and 3, they do nothing for me. Mm. They all love their country, but that's not right. So, you know, what was it like to contemplate trying to get a piece of legislation through the House and Senate or whatever it was? You know, what's it like to, to play in the big leagues? Because it's one thing to do, 
you know, state courts, one thing to do federal courts, one thing to take something to Supreme Court. But now you're getting senators involved. How how did you even get it in there? Tell us a bit about, you know, how you how you how you broke in to the to the U.S. Congress. Well, I I was the um, the chairman of the Republican Trial Lawyer Caucus of the Trial Bar for ATLA. And so I'd been in the political game for a while and knew some of the people. As a matter of fact, it was my uncle Gray Noakes who uh, talked Orrin Hatch into running back in 1976. Hmm. I had good friends that had served as his chief of staff. So I had to connect with him. And I knew my way a little bit about around Washington. But, I mean, I wouldn't say I was really adept at it, but I, I knew a little bit about it. The other players knew a lot about it. So as we got into it... Um, uh, senator Orrin Hatch, the senior senator from Utah, who happens to be extraordinarily powerful and well-liked on both sides. He and Dianne Feinstein do a lot of bills together. Joe Biden, Ted you talk Kennedy. to him. Ted Kennedy. He's very well-liked because he wants to get things done. He's not an ideologue on certain issues and won't budge like some of them are. So when we went back there, because of my connect, we were able to do that with him and some of the others. And it's kind of like, you know, um, you don't have to be the smartest lawyer in town if you've got a great case. Mm-hmm. And we had a great case, and we had a compelling story. We had compelling clients. So it all started coming together, and we started using all of our resources from all of the firms to lobby, as it were, and put a bill together. We had a very good bill put together. And we thought it was going to pass. Only on the Senate side? Well, Senate and the House side. I mean, we had it going both places. And then they end up going to conference, and the book tells the story. Long story short, um, the administration killed it. The, the, Bush, the administration. Bush administration. But you're not coming down hard on President Bush. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if someone told me, President Bush has read your book, and I guarantee he understands the issue A to Z, and he said, we're not going to pay him. Well, then I got a different issue with President Bush. Then my my issue to him would be, my pronouncement to him would be, well, President Bush, I got, I got news for you. You know those young men and women over in Afghanistan and Iraq that are fighting our battle, walking the wall, protecting us? They're going to be tomorrow's veterans. Why don't you tell their mothers before you put them on buses and trains and planes to go over there? Here's how we're going to treat you, and... Uh, and we're going to do it the same way we treated the men from 60 years ago. And they're our greatest generation. You know, if you walk around Washington, D.C., there's so many great monuments. And I was there, and I walked past the archives building. And outside the building, it says, past is prologue. I'd say, President Bush, why don't you explain that to the mothers of America? I mean, now, if that's if he comes and says, okay, I've read it, I understand it, and we're not going to do it to hell with these guys. Then I got a different battle with him. But I give him the benefit of the doubt till he reads the book. So, now, remarkably enough, Senator Hatch called me up a couple of weeks ago and said two senators have read the book because we got it to all 535 of them. And they said, we want your bill reintroduced. The House and Senate. House and Senate. Duncan Hunter from the House said the same thing. So we've got great hope. I'm on the phone every day with a staffer from Senator Hatch going over a bill he's going to introduce. And I think on July the 25th, he's going to introduce it. And he thinks it's going to pass. He said, there's no way you can read this uh, account and say, we're going to walk away from this. Uh, and if, if anything gives me a great feeling of accomplishment, it's that that maybe this book that I had a sense was going to be important early on, not because of me. I mean, the, the great writing that's done in this book is Lee Benson. 
I mean, he's the great writer. They're my stories, but we sat down and he worked it out. I, I'm not the protagonist of this. I, I didn't shoot down anything. It's Harold Poole. But if I did anything worthwhile, is I involved myself in a great case and I was on the right side. You know, years ago, when the book came out about John Adams, um, one of the, um, and that's the book by David McCullough, when I was reading it, I was kind of um, arrested in the first couple of pages because John Adams was a trial lawyer. You know, he represented the British in the Boston Massacre. And one of the quotes, and um, when I came here tonight, I noticed you had the book and I took it off the shelf. And much to your credit, you've got this quote, um, uh, uh, you know, you've got it underlined. It reads as follows. Um, well, let me set this up a little better. John Adams is telling uh, his friend Jonathan Seawall um, why he felt privileged and blessed to be a lawyer. Now, this is something lawyers need to hear. Quote, now to what higher object, to what greater character can any mortal aspire than to be possessed of all this knowledge, well digested and ready to command, to assist the feeble and friendless, to discountenance the haughty and lawless, to procure redress to wrongs, the advancement of right, to assert and maintain liberty and virtue, to discourage and abolish tyranny and vice. That's what being a lawyer is about. I mean, that's why you do it. It isn't about a fee. I mean, you hit a certain point where, where money isn't an issue. You do it for principle. I mean, this is one of the founding fathers. This is John Adams. He wasn't on the quote-unquote right side of a case representing the British, or was he? He was on the right side of the process. He participated in the process. And you say, well, how comes there's all this friction? Well, because you got two sides going after the same prize. I want custody of my children. I want alimony. You know, I want this contract enforced. Well, that's going to lead to a little bit of friction. But I kind of felt when I read this John Adams quote, you know, Jimmy, you, you've probably screwed up more, you know, a little bit in your life here and there, and maybe your video wouldn't be uh, all that pleasant to watch all the way through. But on this one, I think I did the right thing. And... Uh... And sort of in, in closing. Well, let me, let me tell you what I'd like to close with if I could. Please. You know, you look back at your career when you're 57 years old. We're going to have our 30th uh, reunion at the BYU Law School. And I met with a dean today, and I talked about a very, very close friend of mine and about how I thought he might be somebody that could make a difference in the legal profession because I kind of thought of him in terms of this John Adams quote. And I thought about what my career meant to me and what I gave to other people. And I think about, you know, the sacrifices I made to prosecute this case, the money, the time, the energy. And it's kind of silly for me to think in those terms because I took so much more out of it than I gave. I mean, to be involved in a case of national import with the greatest lawyers in the country, the finest men I've ever met, and to represent Harold Poole, who couldn't speak for himself before the U.S. Congress until he did it. You know, it reminds me of a case I had years ago for a Hispanic boy, 16 years old in high school, who um, was working out in the fields uh, doing carrot harvesting. 
Don't know if you've ever seen the machine, but it's uh, got a platform, and then it's got something that digs in the ground, and the carrots come up, and the tops are severed. And they've got a conveyor belt that takes the tops off, and the carrots go one way, and the carrot tops go down. In order to make it go quicker, someone had to take the guard off the chain and the sprocket. So somebody had to stand up there, you know, because if the if the carrot tops get caught, they got to stop the machine and stops the production. It goes twenty four seven when the carrot harvest is on down the Coachella Valley. So somebody has to stand there on a wet platform at night some of the time with a broom handle pushing the carrot tops out of the way of this belt that goes round and around and around. My client did that. One night during the harvest, he's pushing the carrot tops out. There's no guard on that sprocket. There's a very dim light that gives illumination to the area where he's working. Dangerous beyond belief. He pushes down and he slips and he falls. And his arm gets caught up in the sprocket. It was two days later in the hospital before he even knew his arm was gone. Because when you have that kind of traumatic injury, you just don't even feel it. Well, I took that case on for Marciano. And it was a difficult case because of some workman's compensation issues and some unusual laws in California. But we ended up taking that case all the way to trial. And I won it. But the other side didn't want to pay. So they took it up on appeal. And so it was another uh, 18 months before we were going to get a, a final judgment. Well, my office was situated in such a way that um, the waiting room is out front, then there's a hallway, and there's a garden in front of my office. So I can see into the garden and see into the waiting room. So I can actually see when clients come in. Marciano was a young kid, um, and he just stopped by without a, an appointment all the time just to visit with his lawyer. And most of the time, I just really enjoyed seeing him because he was kind of a, a real witty kid, even though he was basically undereducated. And he'd show up and he'd come in my office. We'd have a Diet Coke and laugh about <clears throat> this, that, and the other. Well, one day I see him come in the office and I was having a real bad day. I mean, I, I can't remember what it was about, but it was bad for whatever reason. And I see him, I said, oh, no. So I tell the secretary to have him come back. He comes in the office. He plops down in my chair. Hey, Parkinson, what's going on, baby? And I said, well, nothing. And, and they keeps trucking and driving like we always did. And then... All of a sudden, it dawns on him that I'm not the same. He said, Mr. Parkinson, what's the matter, man? Uh, what's going on? And I'll leave out his um, four-letter words. And uh, I said, well, I'm having a bad day, Marciano. Oh, how can you have a bad day? I said, what do you mean? He said, was that, that, is that a picture of your wife over there? I said, yeah. Said, Those are your kids? I go, yeah. He said, is that your Mercedes Benz out in the parking lot? I said, well, well it's the office, but I get to use it. And... He said, well, how can you have a bad day? Well, I said, Marcelo, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, I'm having a real bad day. I mean, it can even happen to me. And so this, this Hispanic kid looks at me, and he said, um, I guess you are having a bad day. I said, yeah. And he said, maybe I had to leave. And I said, yeah, probably. So he stood up, and he went to the door. He started opening the door, and then he shut the door, and he came back to me, and he said, uh, he said, uh, would it help you if I gave you a hug? 
I looked at him, and I said yes. And then a one-armed, farm-working boy put the only good arm he had around me and gave me a hug and whispered in my ear, Parkinson, it'll be okay, and left. And then when he left my office, I sat down and cried, and I, I said to myself, uh, if you've done it unto them, the least of them, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Well, it wasn't the big-time lawyer given to anybody. It was Marciano hugging me. He'd given to me. I was the least of them that day. And that's kind of how I feel about Harold Poole and his um, comrades. I mean, I got so much more out of it than they did. I, I ended up winning the Marciano case, and and um, but I see him from time to time, and I remember that story. I never have a bad day anymore. And then when I have a real bad day now i've got a picture of the quadriplegic client jonathan on my desk who i just love and every time i start feeling a little bit goofy that i'm not having a good day I just look at that and i say i'm just glad i'm in this position possessed of these talents prepared to take on issues that are of significance to the person sitting in front of me whether it's a national case or somebody that lost a father and needs my help and then I feel okay about everything. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Real quick, I just have to ask you: Is this it? Is this um, is this your capstone work for veterans, or do you have other uh, things in store, maybe? Well, I, I think that as I've gone out and talked to different people, it's uh, abundantly clear we don't really take as good a care as we should. I was talking to a doctor friend of mine that said, if, if you loved your a father or whatever, you'd never send him to a veteran's hospital. That makes me feel bad. Um, when I go different places, uh, I hope to keep track of the congressmen who do the right thing uh, for veterans and the corporations that uh, you know make contributions, especially those who have contracts with the government. So I've got a web page. It's um, ForgottenVeterans.org and um, just started it. I was i got to give credit to you, John, for helping me set it up. I mean, I'm kind of a com uh, computer illiterate because of my age. Oh, yeah. But you're going to bring me into the new, the new millennium. Up. Hook and, you up. And it's my intention as I go from place to place to solicit um, uh, charitable donations to uh, veterans groups that people get to pick, but articulate the issues for everybody. And then hopefully on my webpage post, you know, who's doing what. So if a congressman drives his car around that says, uh, I support the troops, well, you know, we're not going to judge you by the color of your bumper sticker. We're going to maybe judge you by the way you vote. And uh, when this bill comes up again, I'm going to put on my webpage how everybody voted. And then we'll vote on you. Very good. All right, James Parkinson. The book is Soldier Slaves Abandoned by the White House Courts in Congress. Written by James W. Parkinson and Lee Benson. Forward by Senators Orrin Hatch and Joe Biden. Thank you for coming on Mormon Stories. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, for all the listeners, please don't hesitate to come up to the blog, mormonstories.org. Send my cousin a note or two. Tell him uh, if you think he's full of it or if you think he's a genius. I think he'd enjoy hearing uh, either one and uh, engaging a bit on the blog. Um, Again, we always appreciate those who have taken time to uh, make a, a donation, large or small, to Mormon Stories. Your donations definitely help 
uh, keep this thing going, keep the expenses going. We do have at least a couple more podcasts planned in the short term. I won't tell you too much about them now, but know that you can uh, expect at least a couple more before the fall. Um, We really appreciate your listenership. So with that, thanks again for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon.
didn't get to tell him All the things I had to say Think I caught his spirit Later that same year I'm sure I heard his echo In my baby's newborn tears I just wish I could have told him In the living years To say it's 